Okay, so welcome back to the UFO Thinker podcast. My name is Frank and let's get cracking. And this is going to be a part two, picking up uh, where we left off a couple of weeks ago. Um, So I'd like to welcome back once again, Dave Smethurst. How are you doing, mate? I'm in good form, Frank. Looking forward to this, to talking to the pair of you. Very good. Aye, we'll pick up where we left off. And obviously, Frank Milburn back again. How are you today, pal? Yeah, I'm great, mate. It's nice to be back on with you guys. Great stuff. So... Yeah, so last time we talked a lot about disinformation efforts within the UFO community, uh, whistleblower legislation, and and much more along the way. So if anybody did miss out on that one, I'd recommend going back and checking it out. And with with that said, uh, we'll move on to a fresh topic today to kick off today's conversation, uh, which is if these secret crash retrieval and reverse engineering programs do indeed exist, and they are really working on advanced non-human tech and trying to uh, work out how to use that it stands to reason that the u.s military would be pulling out all the stops to to keep it tightly under wraps as we discussed in the last episode and also that we would start to develop our own tech through reverse engineering to give an edge on the battlefield and uh, for the more skeptical listeners out there even if you're not convinced that these programs do exist or maybe you tend towards thinking that these programs don't have like intact craft or working sources etc programs may still exist to analyze uap characteristics and try and work out you know work those capabilities into technology and if we could figure out a way to recreate some of these five observables in deployable technology it could potentially be a game changer and the five observables, just for any listeners who are not aware or a refresher for those who are, is anti-gravity. UFOs seem to be able to generate lift without any visible propellers, wings, or, or rocket propellant means of propulsion. Instant acceleration. Many UFOs are observed accelerating extremely quickly beyond any known object and would generate a huge amount of G-forces beyond what any human or human-made craft could tolerate. hypersonic speed without signatures ufos have been seen traveling at several times the speed of sound without sonic booms low observability ufos seem to have the ability to avoid detection cloaking themselves from radar and visual instruments Uh, and when they are detected they sometimes disappear without warning and transmedium travel some ufos seem to be able to travel effortlessly between space air and water which means they can withstand a huge range of uh, varying pressures from the high pressure of the ocean to the low almost non-existent pressure of space and they can maneuver through all three of those mediums without any problems so how could these technologies actually be used on the battlefield to give a strategic advantage? Could we see this perhaps being used as an ace card in a in a conflict such as the Russia-Ukraine conflict? And uh, Frank, I feel like this is one that you know quite a bit about, having uh, written your paper, uh, American Development of UAP Technology, a fait accompli, which kind of taps into some of these issues. So I'll start with you, mate, if that's all right. What are your thoughts on all of that? Well, I think even if, um, you know, the United States, for example, were able to develop just, you know, one or two of, of, of the, uh, you know, five observables, then it obviously would give you like a major advantage, both in strategic terms and operational terms. I think if we look at, uh, you know, slide nine as a place to start, 
um, depending on which one you look at, whether it's the one that came off unidentified or, or the one that was uh, on the website. Um, the science exists for an enemy of the United States to deliver a weapon virtually anywhere on the planet at any time without detection or interdiction, using camouflage, virtually instantaneous acceleration maneuvering, jamming, and little or no, to, um, no detectable signatures. And if we look back to... Um, you know, UAP activity over nukes in the United States where they've shot down, uh, mi uh, you know, missiles or when they've actually started up missiles, um, you know, as in the case of the, you know, when Ukraine was part of the uh, former uh, the Soviet Union, um, that, that would obviously be a, you know, a key strategic asset to have. And if you could actually, you know, deliver like your own nukes, you could just appear instantaneously and, uh, and, and, and undetectably in the middle of, a, of an enemy's territory and, and, or even you know using standoff weapons and basically take out their strategic assets, um, whether it's uh, you know the the land-based part of the triad, the, the the nuclear missiles, whether it's you know the bombers on the ground that you're taking out, or whether you know if you've got like a, a transmedium capability, if you're taking out like nuclear submarines, so that would be a you know an obvious advantage there. I think if we're looking at um, you know the sort of operational advantages, if we look at um, actually on the battlefield. If we look at the lessons of the sort of the Azerbaijan-Armenian conflict in 2020, and also the the, the recent conflict in Ukraine, the Azerbaijan-Armenian conflict in 2020 was arguably the first drone war. So we saw those pictures of um, dug-in, you know, heavy artillery and Armenian tanks being taken out from the air by um, you know uh, Israeli supplied to Azerbaijan loitering drones, and also by um, you know uh, Bayraktar Turkish drones, which are supplied to Azerbaijan. Um, that's also carried on to the um, into the um, Ukrainian conflict, where we've seen also the vulnerability of uh, you know of, of battle tanks and also infantry fighting vehicles to you know drones from the air, and also to man portable anti armor weapons, you know carried by you know guys in, in the back of a pickup truck, um, which recently uh, led a, a senior U.S. Marine Corps general to say, well, this is one reason why you know the U.S. Uh, Marines why we've divested ourselves of our main battle tanks precisely because of. You know the, the, these uh, these threats. We spent so much time with the, well, the United States and the Brits and other allies. They spent so much time in Afghanistan protecting themselves from like side-on and bottom-up threats, like from mines and things like that. That they haven't really taken care of. You know the over the over the, they haven't thought so much about the overhead threat. Um, so I would say also as well the vulnerability of logistics that was demonstrated both in the in the recent conflict in Ukraine, but also very much so in uh, in Iraq, where I've got personal experience. And also in Afghanistan. So imagine trying to move, um, you know, logistics. You're talking, you know, hundreds of hundreds of vehicles in a convoy or a hundred vehicle convoy, and you're moving it through, you know, difficult uh, terrain which is infested with insurgents. And you know, obviously, military operations require qu rely quite heavily on logistics. So that would be an area where um, it would be very important to have, um, for example, I don't know, if you had like large triangles, you could move. Um, you know, this the kind of the, the equipment and the men and, and the petrol lubricants and the ammunition and everything else that you needed without you know being vulnerable on the ground so that would be an obvious area where um you know five observe or tech would help also we've seen um you know rotary and fixed wing aircraft have been um you know very vulnerable to to, to man portable air defense systems in ukraine um you could see and this is what i'd imagine you could see uh five observable craft carrying out the full range of missile uh, of missions um, that before you had a, a needed a, a multitude of platforms to perform. So whether you're talking um, you know, deep strike missions with um, uh, with standoff weapons, whether you're talking uh, suppression of enemy air defences, whether you're talking inte intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, um, electronic warfare, jamming, signals intelligence, communication intelligence, defensive air operations, offensive counter air, close air support, anti-shipping, counter battery fires, and also air assault ops. Um, 
So I've given you like a, quite a, a wide range there, but you could imagine a five observable craft on the battlefield. It could uh, appear like, you know, kind of almost instantaneously with very low observability, uh, you know, cloaking effectively. It could deliver troops, you know, directly onto an objective. And then it could loiter sort of, you know, uh, virtually um, indefinitely over the battlefield, especially if it were a an un, an un, a non a non human piloted craft if it, were, if it were piloted by by ai it could deposit its troops it could uh, it could uh, deposit um it could release uh, dro- uh, swarms of drones over the battlefield to support the troops on the ground and it could loiter indefinitely over the battlefield carrying out you know a range of different missions so i think this is very much uh, you know the, the the future of warfare this is kind of like you know the the beyond next generation leap um, in in military affairs yeah, I suppose it depends on which observables were cracked as well, doesn't it? Quite heavily as to actually how they would get used and and things like that. But like you say, if the if the stealth that that's you know presumably would be one of the first things that they would attempt to crack because it would be so so useful. Do you think it would be a case of they would try to integrate something like a you know a, a stealth vehicle into delivering like existing you know like you say drones and and transporting cargo and things like that and they would be able to do that in a way where it wasn't detected as being five observables craft so they'd be able to sort of you know use it in conjunction with what's already being used or do you think it would just be a case of they wouldn't actually start to use any of this reverse engineered tech until the point where they were ready to sort of show the hand to the world that look we've got this stuff um but, well they, they you, you wouldn't want to use it um until um you know, it's deployable. So it's like, you know, it, it, you've got quite a long flash to bang time between um, the, you know, the conceptualization of a craft and then actually being able to build it and then and then putting it into uh, and putting it into production and then, you know, deploying it in deployable squadrons. But I think, you know, for me, this is very much, you know, the, the future uh, of warfare. And especially if you look at, you know, like the electronic warfare, the jamming missions. I mean, if you look at the, the, the Tehran case, if you look at the, um, you know, the Nimitz case, I think there's a very clear um, case to be said that um, that these five observable craft that it's not just um, a case of um, aircraft being in proximity to the UAP that causes kind of jamming, but I think the fact that UAP have seemingly selectively jammed certain systems of the aircraft, like in Tehran, shut down the weapon system, but without affecting the other avionics that are required to run the aircraft. Okay, so it shuts down the avionics. It shuts down. Sorry, it shuts down the weapon system, and also it shuts down. Uh, you know, the communications, both the communications that the pilot had back to base, and also his intercom with, with, with his backseater. So I think we've seen that, and that ability to sort of selectively jam is very, very sophisticated. Um, so I think that 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 would give a major advantage. But I mean, even if you crack like um, you know, like the sort of the the the, the signatures and the camouflage and uh, and you know the jamming. I mean, even if you had like say two two of the five observables uh, or three of the five observables, you, you, you'd be onto a major winner already. Mm. Yeah, very interesting, mate. Thanks. So what do you reckon, Dave? I know you've got a, a lot to say on this one. We've talked oh, about it quite I, a bit. I've got quite as much to say after listening to Frank because he's answered a few of the questions. That was a cracking <laughs> answer, that. Uh, really interesting. Uh, anyway, I'll tell you where I'm coming from because I was interested to hear what Frank thought about this as well because when I thought about this, the wider picture of how devastating they would be. So let's say you've named them cracked stealth, air superiority, instantaneous strike, powerful weapons, and, and the jamming. I wasn't sure about that, but yeah, God slide nine. That that have obviously major battlefield advantages, as you said. I also haven't thought about that uh, 
tank point, because we've seen how the tanks have been devastated by handheld weapons, like you've said, in the Ukraine. And it's sort of tanks like becoming a new aircraft carrier in a way, isn't it? But it's uh, very vulnerable and, you know, can be taken down relatively cheaply. But anyway, that being said, what, where I thought about this is when you look at uh, the nuclear deterrent and you think about that, what is the actual advantage of these stealth weapons? Because in a way, uh, the nuclear deterrent, you've sort of answered this, Frank, but I'll go with it anyway and see what you think. The, the nuclear deterrent has been designed just by happenstance there's sort of a lot of fail-safes built into it and to respond to surprise attacks and all the rest of it. So if you think about it, you've got your small-range tactical weapons, your medium, short-range, your medium-range, then you've got your silos, then you've got your submarines that are difficult to track. And it's all designed to prevent the very thing that they all feared, which was a sneak attack. And what I've often struggled with is... Uh, even though I knew about, not quite in the detail you said, the, the sort of how good the tech was, you know, the, the possible tech you could get, you know, the reverse engineered tech, was it really, would it really be able to get around this sort of redundancy planning that's in the nuclear deterrent? And therefore, was it ultimately, A, do you need to keep it secret as long as you tell your allies, look, we can't take you out, but we have got a massive threat here? Or B, uh, it, it isn't the big advantage we all think. It's clearly a big advantage against non-nuclear countries and smaller countries, but maybe it isn't quite the advantage, even though it's absolutely brilliant, uh, that we think just because of the nature of the nuclear deterrent and how it's structured. Now, clearly, I can see a scenario where you might have satellites shooting out the, you know, various things attacking. The US must have some satellite things we don't know about that can take a lot of targets out simultaneously. I can see where they take out the missiles if they knew where they were. Submarines, I think, are really hard to do, even though I know the US have got a massive detection system, you know, probably designed for that. But would this tech, the question I suppose is, would this tech be able to sufficiently take out the nuclear deterrent to give you that upper hand that you'd need for it to be the killer blow, as it were? I don't I mean, that's, I'm phrasing that as a question. I just wonder what you guys think. You did answer it a bit, though, Frank, in fairness. I think that's a very good question. I mean, um, you know, would you be able to effectively, if you were the Americans and you had this technology, would you be able to take out, you know, the entire of, uh, you know, Russia's or China's, you know, nuclear inventory? Um, it might work uh, against, you know, like a, um, a smaller nuclear power like uh, North Korea that's got, you know, more limited facilities. But even then, would you be guaranteed of getting everyone before, you know, before they launched? But I think, you know, if you had all the five observables, right, I mean, uh, in, think back to 1964 Vandenberg when you had that UAP zipping that you know that footage of the UAP that's zipping around the warhead right and taking it out. I mean, obviously you'd have to have enough UAP uh, or those you'd have to have enough five observable craft to a take out uh, all the enemy's nuclear triad and also b um, to take out any any you know sort of a multiple independent uh, reentry vehicles that were coming your way or um, hypersonic weapons as well. So I don't think it would be like a panacea completely um, for and also, you, I would say you wouldn't want to um, maybe introduce, and that's a very good point of yours, Dave, would you want to introduce that level of instability into, into, into a pre-existing nuclear relationship? I think it might be um, uh, more useful when you have, some, for example, someone like Putin saying, I'm going to use you know, nukes on Ukraine. You go, well, actually, we've got on a bit, we've, we have the ability to prevent you from doing that. Then, then it might be, you know, in that scenario, it might be, um, you know, smart to use it. But it, overall, to... Uh, kind of destabilize the existing kind of nuclear relationship because um, nuclear deterrence works on um, 
the deterrent has to be credible. I like both sides have like a um, a second strike capability. Um, both 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 sets of decision uh, decision makers are viewed as rational, and uh, both sides um, you know consider this to be the case, right? Accept this as the case. So if you're introducing kind of more instability into the relationship, then that might not be such a great thing. Um, so that's a very good question there. Um, but I think um, if we also as well, if we look at like um, some of the things that Dr. Jack sarfati has been coming out, he's been talking about like a you know white hole event horizon where he says um, he said um, you know would a, a craft um, you know, with, with its surrounding field, it wouldn't be susceptible to surface-to-air missiles or even air-to-air missiles or even a nuke detonated in proximity with the craft um, because it basically produces a, a white hole, that's sort of an artificial white hole event horizon, which is generated by the metamaterial that prevents anything from penetrating. And he says no matter how powerful the energy associated with the weapon, i.e. like a rocket or a, or a rail gun, um, you know, was being used. But uh, at the same time, that that white hole event horizon would allow you know the the, the platform you know to, 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 to fire out, out outside uh, of that uh, of that energy field. So I find that very interesting as well. So um, I, I'd keep an open mind, but I think with with the whole um, you know the nuclear aspect of it, I think it would be more effective maybe these platforms against you know someone like Iran or, or North Korea that's got a relatively small amount of uh, of nuclear weapons. You know, obviously, Iran hasn't developed them yet, but they, you know, they have aspirations to. Yeah, that's it. I mean, that, that's kind of um, what I was thinking earlier about how many observables, you know, could could be cracked and that kind of thing. And, and at what point would they feel like the the, the tech was a, a good idea to use? Because, like you said, Frank, it sort of it does completely change the dynamic of a new nuclear relationship between countries, doesn't it? If you if you you know reveal that you've got any of these observables and and then even at that point when you're considering actually using this tech, you know, would you, for example, you know, obviously none of this is actually going to happen uh, based on any facts or anything, but let's just say um, the US wanted to try and launch a strike on Moscow using a, a UAP, you know, five observables type of craft, even if it was launching a, a non nuclear strike against moscow to try and get rid of the regime there it could still trigger a kind of a mutually assured destruction type of situation couldn't it even if the the actual strike itself is a non-nuclear strike so it's very risky actually starting to use that tech even if you're not using the tech to deliver anything nuclear yeah absolutely um i think also i mean there'd be it would be useful in terms of demonstrations and certainly it would give you um an unparalleled space capability so you know, we've seen, um, you know, like the Chinese destroy satellites. There are, you know, a satellite um, in a demonstration and also the Russians. Um, so you could certainly blind the enemy. Um, but again, that 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 that, that um, enters an element of instability. Um, so I think that for the foreseeable future, until until you're guaranteed of being able to rid yourself of all the opposing forces nukes, it, it might actually be a kind of like, you know, a, a level of instability that, that you're introducing there if you bring kind of these technologies uh, to the battlefield. So maybe they would still be, um, they, they would still be these technologies would be relegated to the operational sphere, i.e. actually on the battlefield itself. Um, so those are my thoughts on it. Yeah, what do you, anything to add on that then, Dave? I just think it's really interesting. I hadn't thought about the, uh, the, the issue about, you know, the, the sort of defensive stuff. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, th I think 
that that does cover it. I just, I just, yeah. So that that covers it for me for now because I haven't thought about. There's a potential. I'm, I remember reading your paper, Frank, about that shield, and I forgot about it. I think it was your first paper. That defensive capability is not something I've thought of. Obviously, you'd have to make it in sort of a big shield. You know, there may be something about that. You know, there's there's a there's a few different things that might. But this idea of instability is very interesting because I thought you could be quite a good deterrent if you said, right, we can't take out your nuclear thing, but we've got these massive, when you advertise, we've got these massive conventional forces. That had stopped Taiwan, I would have thought, or sorry, an invasion of Taiwan, because the Chinese would never risk getting absolutely hammered in open field. So I think it would be, you know, it would be a, a advantageous, advantageous to say you had that tech there. But in a more entrenched scenario like in Ukraine where, escalation is very easy unless you it'd be very difficult you might be able to threaten to take the leadership out but you couldn't really stop everything but what i hadn't thought of was what frank said about how you introduced instability into the system i think that's a really interesting concept i hadn't really thought of that and, and that is true because i hadn't even thought of that frank believe it or not where you said you could instantaneously deliver a nuclear strike that hadn't occurred you know are you thinking all these up that is absolutely mental. That so that possibility could really set things off as well. So I think the thing is, it's been the accepted wisdom that if you had these weapons, it was game. It's sort of game over, and, yeah. and I don't think it is game over. And so, therefore, the question of what you show and tell becomes a bit more nuanced and sophisticated. But what I hadn't thought of that it's the instability thing. I think is quite a a big determinant taking that forward. Yeah, um, Jack Sarfati actually um, sent uh, to the European uh, defense community, there's, um, he actually sent to the European, um, to the EU, he actually sent a proposal, which he showed me, which was basically for what we call a white hole swarm hole, which is basically anti-ballistic missile technology, which was wow. using, using, um, using basically... Um, uh, the, the metamaterial technology, right, of, of, of you know, like five observable type platforms that you create this kind of artificial white hole horizon that could basic that could stop, um, you know, the, that could stop any missiles from from penetrating, you know, your territory. So if you imagine if you had like say, you know, a whole a swarm effectively of these of these platforms around the United States around its allies, you could actually, you know, his proposal was you could actually stop, um, you know, these missiles coming in, and also on a on a on a sort of an operational level. Um, you know, like the the Israelis, they've got Iron Dome and the uh, uh, system, right? And um, and David Sling in in Israel, um, and you could even stop smaller rounds, like um, you know, from mortars and from uh, you know, tubed artillery and rockets. You could stop those coming in as well um, by, by by generating mm. these fields that nothing can penetrate. So, I think in terms of the, the of the of the of the, of the nuclear. Uh, aspect i think it might be very destabilizing even if you said like okay we've got you said to the russians and the chinese we've got this technology now um that um you know you basically your your, your nukes are useless um against us because um you know you, you can't do any damage to us but i think you, you, it would be a long time getting to that stage you'd have to have a lot of craft to be able to have um you know that kind of complete um protection around the united states and around its allies um and also um you know, the other side would be pushing as well to develop their own technology, right, as a result, yeah. because, you know, these um, things always create arms races. I remember you saying, Frank, but it's one thing developing a prototype. You said it just before, but you've said it in, you know, in more detail. It's another developing enough forces to actually deploy properly, as you were saying. And that's yeah. the big thing, isn't it? It's no good just having a couple of them. You've got to have loads of them. 
And just as you were talking, I was thinking you couldn't stop somebody smuggling a bomb or whatever, a nuclear device, you know, a human person, you know, a human sort of agent or whatever, going to the defence plant or the, the field generator or whatever. It could really, again, destabilise. There's just a question that flows on from that that might, uh, but I remember, I was trying to remember it before, I couldn't remember, but it's come back to me. Let's just say that even with all this tech, you, because of our nuclear, the way our nuclear defence, you can't obviously have 100% reliability. Would that be something that uh, might apply to our situation with the others or the ET, particularly if they were based on this planet? Because it may well be that they know that whatever, despite their tech, I mean, let's assume that it's not mentally brilliant, you know, because otherwise they'd probably just turn it all off. But as far as I know, they've not turned every... If I was the ET and I wanted to make a demonstration, ET is just my shorthand for whatever it is, by the way, uh, I would turn every missile off. I just wouldn't turn off a couple. Because that's the game, isn't it? Turning everyone off simultaneously, I would have thought. And I've never heard of that happening. Uh, yeah, kind of day the earth stood still scenario. Sorry? Yeah, yeah, please, yeah. yeah. What was that scenario? Sorry, Frank. I'm just going to say, kind of like the day the earth stood still. You shut down everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah, I'm with you. I thought it was some. I thought you were going to hit me with some scenario, but I'd already thought of it. Yeah, I remember that. That was that. what a film that was. Uh, and I, I was also, anyway, let's not get, I won't get sidetracked. So, so. It might well be that all this stuff when we hear experiences talk and all the rest of it about get rid of your nukes and you're terrible and, oh, please, please, it's because they want, <laughs> before we get rid of them, they can't take us out. I mean, I'm, I'm only speculating. I'm not some rabid, whatever. I don't sit there worrying about all these things. But it is interesting because Corso raised this in his book. And while Corso's account's a bit problematic in many ways and the history of it, he still did, he was adamant that the reason we had the nuclear weapons, we didn't want to get rid of them because we'd be vulnerable then. But I do wonder if, if what source for the, for the human goose, as it were, is also the same for the uh, other, I'm going to say gander, but the analogy is breaking down. But you know what I mean? It, it's just interesting to think about whether we're being a bit gaslit about our nuclear stuff and the, uh, uh, it's our one saviour. Yeah, I mean, it is, in it is interesting that that point you make. I mean, why... Did they just do kind of isolate? Well, I mean, we say isolated events. They did it over a period of years in the United States, shutting down nukes, and they had that famous case, the one that we know about, and I'm sure there were more, <laughs> when they actually initiated a nuke in, in, yeah. in Russia. But why didn't they shut down all America's nukes or all of Russia's nukes at the same time? So that's a, that's a very good point. Um, I, so I was just going to say, I think um, in terms of, kind of like more prosaic terms um, and leaving the others out aside for a moment, yeah. Um, there would be obvious ap applications for, um, I talked about kind of like using, you know, the, the five observables kind of like as anti-satellite weapons. So you, you'd have to, you'd control the high ground of space. You control like, you know, the moon, Mars, wherever you wanted to, to have your companies um, start mining and wherever you wanted to put outlying military outposts. And because let's face it, that also as well, the future of mankind depends upon, um, you know, colonization of space because eventually the, the sun, the sun's expanding, isn't it? So eventually we're going to get fried on Earth. So the future of, uh, uh, of uh, and also as well, if we screw up our planet in the meantime, um, which we're doing pretty well. So the future of, of human of human existence is going to be in space. And also, you know, that the masters of commercial uh, advantages as we deplete uh, resources and look for new ones out there. Um, but it, the other issue that I was looking at was, um, which I actually talked to at the Intersect conference, was um, the kind of like anti-asteroid defense as well. So 
you know that's been NASA's been looking at obviously recently, and they tested um, they tested this this effectively a warhead that they had or a sat that, that they crashed into a meteorite. But I think that would be very very important as well. Um, this using this five observable tech technology to actually prevent the Earth being destroyed by a meteorite. Yeah, really interesting points, and I think um, the kind of um, you know the 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 basis of that uh, that what Dave was talking about is you know we constantly hear about like the the others kind of um you know telling us to get rid of nuclear weapons for our own good because we're going to destroy ourselves but what if you know actually those nuclear weapons are pretty effective against the the others themselves and um that is a reason why they want us to uh, to get rid of them which is a, a really interesting point um obviously a lot of speculation involved with that that train of thought but very uh, interesting to think about but what you were just saying there frank as well regarding five observables tech actually enabling us to actually go off this planet i'd never really even considered that five observable tech allowing us to mine asteroids and things like that and potentially use that technology to actually get off this planet altogether and you know colonize other planets so it's a really interesting thought but well, I I mean, i've been thinking a bit a bit too earthly you know <laughs> sort of thing. yeah but i mean it would greatly reduce um it would greatly reduce, you know, obviously the the, the 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 speed of travel, like you know, wherever you're going. So that would be an, that would be a, an advantage, and you know, you'd be able to to, to resupply your people, um, you know, and your uh, and your programs that were going on. Um, yeah, that's all I, I had to say. So leaving leaving aside the others for a moment, um, or sorry, going back to the others rather, uh, I think that if there were you know, species, intelligences like living amongst us on Earth, whether it's deep oceans or in kind of everyday society or underground, then yeah, then they wouldn't want us using nukes because it'd be destroying their habitat as well. I mean, Eric Weinstein said that recently, didn't he? I think at that conference in San Marino, he was talking about cracking Einsteinian, whatever, the, the new Einsteinian model. And he said, it's really important, uh, UAP technology, because it might help us escape. It might be our future, the points Frank was making. So it's an interesting, uh, interesting parallel to that. So he's, obviously people are starting to think about that as well. The, the other implication. I'd not really thought of the off-world stuff, I must admit. It was only that thing that Weinstein said that made me think of that. You know. Yeah, definitely. So following on from that, the the extent of uh, you know what can be learned and incorporated into our military capabilities you know kind of depends on on what the actual tech behind ufo's or uap actually is is doing as well of course it could be the case that we've begun to do quite well in reverse engineering this stuff it could also be that we've been trying to understand it but perhaps certain aspects of it are so advanced and so far ahead of us that we can't even scratch the surface of starting to replicate it obviously it may be more than one type of technology that's being observed as well. And maybe we've figured out some bits of, of what's being seen and other aspects are still a complete mystery to us. And uh, some of the information reported by ex-insiders certainly suggests that there are parts of the phenomena associated with UFOs that are very bizarre indeed. Uh, myself and, and Dave recently discussed Jim Semivan's comments on a, um, a quote, entity living with us on this effing planet, unquote, as Semivan puts it. And um, a particularly fascinating part of all of this is the, the, the lady who has been seen occasionally um, by people who've had experiences. Uh, for example, the, the miracle of Fatima and in more recent times by uh, Chris Bledsoe, and how exactly this fits into the 
the the wider picture is is a bit baffling to me, but I do find it very interesting. And in this topic, you sort of can't go very far without running into some of these strange aspects, which seem a bit sort of woo to somebody that's not deep in the topic. You know, what what to make of the lady, the the concept of a trickster phenomenon, which can include many bizarre absurd elements to people's experiences with ufos the hitchhiker effect the the appearance of, of dogmen the fabled dino beaver of uh, skinwalker ranch etc you know is is all of this linked to parts of the same phenomenon is is this strangeness the result of some kind of change within consciousness itself which occurs when somebody's been exposed to phenomena which allows an individual to start to actually perceive parts of reality that are previously out of the range of human perception. A lot to uh, discuss there, obviously, with all of that side of things. But, Dave, we'll uh, start with you, if that's all right, mate. Well, oh, what do you think about all of that side of things? It's a nice, easy one, Frank, for us to talk about, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah I mean, we have been talking about with Jim Semmerman and all the rest of it. It set us off on that train. I mean, I think there's a couple of things. So what's the trickster? There's a couple of questions so we can pose ourselves, what either or. What is the trickster? Is it like a nuts and bolts race that's got sci-tech or races? Or is it some sort of weirder interdimensional being part of a deeper unseen reality? Then what does it want? What's its agenda? If it's nuts and bolts, it might be anonymity, lack of damage to the planet or something else we can't fathom. It might want something else. If it's not nuts and bolts, it's a bit harder to say. It might want access to this time. It might want to create some behaviours that support it. It can feed on it. It's really weird. It's hard to sort of think about it, really. And that brings us on to the question of what's the nature of reality. Is it some sort of consciousness spectrum going from death to us to high dimensional beings? What is it? Have we got different dimensional entities? Or is it a more focused group that's manipulating this reality but actually uh, are you manipulating us for a purpose and, you know, are we being managed? What's going on? And, and I'm, I'll shut up in a minute, but I'll just finish on this, part, this bit. What fascinates me is why so many intelligence people, particularly, you know, it's, uh, not Skinwalker, Chris Bledsoe's place, why are they so interested and very, very knowledgeable about it? What do they know about it? And why are they so interested, particularly coming back to the lady, in prophecy, because we hear people saying regardedly something's coming, uh, this, that, and the other. I know Bob McGuire said it, James Sullivan said it, a few other people have said it, you know, quite serious people have said that. I'm not that they were saying it definitely was, but, you know, this thing about, so why are so many intelligence people interested? But going back to the thing, what is the trickster? Is it a more focused thing that's using tech and manipulating the nature of reality, or is it the nature of reality more generally? And we're just bumping up against it, really. So I know there's a lot in that, but that was where I've got trying to make sense of the trickster, as it were. Mm. What do you reckon, Frank? Well, what I've been looking at, um, the kind of interest by intelligence agencies in the sort of uh, the kind of like the weirder aspects of, of the phenomenon, um, it goes back, um, you know, to, to, to the early 50s um, with whether it's, um, you know, um, the kind of, yes, going back to slide nine, you know, psychotronic weapons, the ability to, you know, materialize and pass through solid objects and all the rest of it. And if you look at, um, you know, like Nick Redfern's book, uh, Final Events, 
Um, there was, you know, a group of people who he calls the Collins elite or called themselves the Collins elite in the CIA, at least a kind of a dozen of them, who were very concerned with um, with these kind of phenomena. Um, and they viewed, for example, um, you know, the Jack Parsons when he was being investigated, who was the father of kind of like American rocketry. Um, he was being investigated for, for espionage with Israel. Um, but they were very concerned, these Collins elite, that... Um, you know, he, his association with Alistair Crowley, for example, and that Alistair Crowley had attempted to summon uh, or had summoned this being called Lamb, I think it was in 1919, that actually looks very much like a grey alien. And then in the late 30s, um, uh, sorry, in 1947, uh, just before Roswell, then um, uh, Jack Parsons uh, did the same and, uh, and was basically trying to open a portal. And that's what the Collins and he, uh, viewed uh, UFOs as the demonic because they were seeing, you know, that they believed that these portals had been opened for these entities that are effectively demons um, that were masquerading as as kind of aliens, ET, and that um, uh, they were using, um, you know, UFOs as a cover to kind of suborn mankind for their for their satanic uh, uh, requirements and also to harvest human souls. And this is based very much in kind of like a fundamentalist uh, Christian belief. But that paranoia went very far back, and we discussed. Um, you know, if you combine that with the fact that, you know, some of these, um, uh, you know, many of these contactees like Adamski were talking about, you know, communism as well. You had that whole kind of like communist paranoia to it. Um, it you know, it was very concerning for people. Um, and then they had other, other people uh, in the intelligence community who were interested in uh, the types of things that gone on Skinwalker, um, it, both in terms of threat and, and in terms of utility for themselves. So if you're talking... Um, you know, a portal that can be opened up, then okay, then that in one way, that's a threat because something can come through, whether it's UAP or whether it's entities that you can't control. Um, and you'd want to understand what threat does that present. Um, and then also you understand, want to understand like, you know, how to counter that threat and also how to, um, you know, to kind of harness that technology or your power for yourself. And the same would go for, you know, kind of like weird cryptid animals at Skinwalker that, you know, you can discharge high, 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 uh, high velocity weapons at them and uh, high velocity rounds at them and they kind of like see me they don't get affected by it or they can regenerate you'd want to understand what what are the threat what's the threat and also um how can you harness um that that power or technology or whatever it is for, for, for yourself um so i think those are all points and i think that comes out in uh in nick redfern's book the kind of uh, the, the the dichotomy between those in the intelligence community, like the Collins elite, who saw this as completely de demonic and wanted to have nothing to do with it because it was basically leading, you know, towards Armageddon, and and uh, and those the intelligence community who who wanted to try and harness these technologies or powers. Yeah, it's it's pretty fascinating the kind of extremes of of the entities that that people actually experience as well isn't it you know it's like um on the one hand it's things like the the, the lady the sort of divine feminine you know this kind of an, angelic vision and then on the other hand you've got these kind of horrible uh, creatures that are absolutely terrifying and and sometimes people's experiences can be profoundly good or profoundly bad as well and i suppose it it opens up the question are these things actually literally being witnessed or is it some kind of a manipulation like a reflection of of you know your own thoughts or your own interpretations and things like that it reminds me of the um 
the the case that Gary Nolan was talking about recently of the, in in France where there was uh, two people who saw it's a Jacques Vallée case where two people had seen a, a, something like a huge disc I believe it was if I remember rightly and took a picture of it and then what came out on the picture was actually a, a, quite a small star shape you know sort of thing and is it the case that perhaps these entities rather than actually being what they appear to be, are some kind of a manipulation, a technology that actually manipulates your own consciousness and, you know, gives you a sort of reflection of whatever your thoughts are or something like that, you know. Um, interesting to think about. And then I suppose you could say, is it like a, a side effect of whatever technology is in operation or is it a deliberate, you know, effect of that technology to actually, you know, see it a certain way? What do you reckon, Dave? Anything to add on all of that? No, I think I think you could argue. I mean, I read that Nick the Collins Elite book recently, right about a couple of months ago. It was really interesting, and it was hard to think what was manipulation. You know, what was playing on archetypes that had been created over the years? What was real? You could see how a lot of fundamentalist Christians had really believed that and go with that thing, because a lot of them believe in that eschatology, the end of days, and all that stuff, and it really feeds into that. And I think, as I've said before, a lot in the CIA and the other intelligence agencies sort of believe in that. Some of the religious people, but they're also interested into it. So it does go back, to, and Keel wrote about, he seemed to think it was one big underlying entity, or what, not quite, I'm oversimplifying, but presence, that had implanted these archetypes and did manipulate us. So uh, you could argue that playing in our fears, and it comes back to what is it? Is it a specific thing? Or is it a, a more general phenomenon and, and the nature of how it would play with us, as it were, or, 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 or try and manipulate us would be different based on what that is. But I did, the thing, but again, so just to focus, the thing about this prophecy, they were all interested in that. And I'm not sure if it's linked to eschatology or if it's linked to something else. Why would he so interested in the prophecy and this idea of something coming? And it's hard to think to extract between things, they, they may have come across this over the time as intelligence people, the serious people, they're not, you know, just flights, flights of fantasy. Colm Kelleher's well into it. He knew what uh, Jim Semivan had seen. He knew all about it before he spoke to Jim. These guys have looked into it and must think it's important for some reason. I would say over and above, or maybe as part of the Collins Elite stuff, I don't know. But they must think there's something to it. And why, why did he think that? And it, I mean, maybe maybe that's a rhetorical question. I don't know if we can take that any further. But but it, it, that focus is really interesting. The prophecy bit and why why they give you so much weight to that. I've got something else we'll talk about in a little bit with crypto terrestrials, but which links into it. But let, I don't know what you guys think of that. What I've just said. If there's anything else to add, well, I think people, you want it? yeah, I, I think um, you'd be interested on a number of levels. I mean, uh, you know, um, experiences. Um, if you're, you know, an intelligence officer and you're an experiencer, then then um, yeah. you'd obviously be interested in, in, in knowing, you know, what is the, 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 the what is the phenomenon or the the various phenomena. Um, I mean, me for example, I was very interested in the in that final events book um, when um, Nick Redfern Source is talking about um, this experiment to try and contact these others, yeah. and there were. His source was shown a, a, you know, a few dozen uh, photos of these bodies effectively in kind of like dentist chairs, uh, what looked like dentist chairs. And apparently they tried, the story was, they tried to communicate with these others and one was suffocated, one suffered um, like a, you know, a fatal head trauma. 
and another one died of a heart attack. And that was basically because they were trying to contact these entities. So you could see from Colin's elite perspective, um, you know, this is demonic. Uh, this is, mm. but you could see from a from somebody who's looking for another type of intelligence officer who's looking to develop those weapons. They'd be thinking in terms of psychotronic weapons and the kind of work that, you know, the that the Russians and the Eastern Bloc were doing in, in like the late 60s and early 70s and the type of work that the Americans were doing um, in terms of, you know, like remote viewing, psychotronic weapons, uh, you know, mind control. Um, you'd be interested in that, um, you know, in, in trying, to, trying to harness harness these technologies or these powers, whatever they are. But if you are of very much of a fundamentalist Christian bent, then, then you'd be you'd be absolutely terrified of it, and you'd see it, you know, in kind of demonic terms, and you know, your own cognitive dif- dissonance w- w- would affect, you know, the way that, that you're looking at it. And I'm not saying that you know you should mess around with those things at all, um, <laughs> but you know, the fact is that people did, and, and what it seems to be is that there was, you know, one group that was interested in, in checking out these things, and, and another group, you know, the Collins elite, who who was saying that you know you shouldn't have anything to do with it. And I wonder, I mean, if you look at like Skinwalker Ranch. I think the key words for me are defense intelligence agency because, and if you read the book, Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, you know, one of the main criteria for, for, for the program is they wanted to find out if the various phenomena at Skinwalker Ranch, if they presented a risk to national security. And then it follows on from that, you know, if you have these portals, if you have these entities that, that can, you know, can come and go at will, um, if you have these entities that, that are basically invulnerable to, you know, like conventional weaponry, if you have, um, you know, invisible entities that can, um, you know, um, uh, you know, exsanguinate uh, cows within, you know, 400 meters in broad daylight of, of human beings walking around, then you'd want to understand what is the threat and how can you exploit these for, for your own advantage, you know, the, these technologies or powers, whatever they are. So, um that that's really all I've got to say on it. Yeah, it's the the end times prediction thing in particular is always a bit of an attention grabber, isn't it? You know, when people are, are talking about it on on UFO Twitter, um, or just kind of in in the wider UFO community, and and it's difficult to sort of um, to tell if it is any kind of a genuine prediction. A lot of the times, I mean, people have you know experiences and they get given a message by these these others and and that kind of thing. But is it actually any kind of a reflection of things that are going to happen, or is it just something to to manipulate? You know the way that we progress and things like that. It's very difficult to actually pin down. And another thing I wanted to mention as well is this: um, what what Dave said earlier about um, are we actually dealing with like you know a, a single entity? Like, and again, this is another thing that that Gary Nolan has talked about recently. Is he said some, something along the lines of you're leaving the door open to some kind of consciousness rather than what we think of as like a race of beings? Because we're obviously like you know loads of individual biological entities. Maybe that's not what we're dealing with. Maybe it actually is some kind of just. A, a, an, an entity i mean that that's the interesting thing about semivan's comment is he just he describes it as an entity living with us on this planet rather than like a some kind of a, a similar race of small biological selves maybe it's just kind of a one consciousness like a a hive mind and you know potentially if i mean this is kind of going pretty pretty out there into the realms of speculation but if humans eventually do you know develop these neuralink type technologies and that leads us further and further towards some kind of a, a hive mind one consciousness and some time maybe 10,000 20,000 years in the future if we've not wiped ourselves out that we end up as some kind of hive mind one consciousness and perhaps that consciousness would be so powerful that it could actually experience time in a different way 
to what we do as individual biological selves. And that entity that Semivan's talking about, that Gary Nolan leaves the door open to, is perhaps the hive mind that we become in the future that is here with us right now, experiencing time in a different way to what we do. Obviously, you know, pretty, pretty big thing to unpack there, but what do you guys reckon about that? That's, that's pretty mental. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I was just thinking while you were saying that, I was thinking about, remember the movie Forb- Forbidden Planet? I think it was 1952 or 1953. So they go to the Forbidden Planet and then you had this race of beings called the Krell, yeah? Yeah. The Krell. And, and they developed this, the, these machines, these massive, powerful machines, and that basically harnessed their, their mental power so that they could create like wonderful things. They created this whole civilization. But unfortunately, they didn't learn how to create, their, how, how to control their own, uh, you know, kind of evil impulses that, you know, everybody has inside them effectively. And um, that these machines actually then interpreted both their positive thoughts, but also their negative thoughts as well. And they ended up destroying themselves. So I'm asking you like that, that seems to me, you know, kind of like a, almost like a hive mind and, you know, kind of like a, an amplification of, of will, um, which is also what Crowley was always, always on about. And also Jack Parsons was about, you know, the, 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 the generation of your will uh, to, to produce an effect, but does it produce a positive effect? Or does it produce a negative effect? Um, and I think you see that, you know, for example, like in Buddhism, um, you know, like you see all these monks like chanting together, they're basically trying to generate like a positive will, aren't they together? But, um, if you did it from a, a, a place of fear or a place of paranoia, then you know maybe you could manifest things that are you know that, that are definitely malign. Um, so I'm trying to still understand, you know, what, is it some kind of power? Or is it some kind of technology? I mean, I mean, there's that idea of transcendence. You're getting a lot of sci-fi movies. There. I think I forget what the word, the transmute, trans, not transmutation. That's a, a cult idea. But it races when they get to a certain point in the sci-fi. This is in sci-fi. They sort of go into the next dimension and just transmit, going a bit like the Hive stuff, like you're saying. But Hive, that's one of my favourite films, that Frank Forbidden Planet, and that's great, the Krill and all that, and they create this ill id machine where they kill it, like Frank's already said, it's all going to it again. Fantastic, uh, fantastic thinking. But it does come back to the thing I was praying, is this just part of what it is, and we're tapping into these forces and Crowley and everybody, or whatever, whoever, the various people in religion, are tapping into this nature of reality, and that's what we're dealing with. Or are we dealing with something else that's like surfing on the top of this reality and actually doing more focused things? I think that's that's like the question around this. Is it just part of it and it's coming through in a bit of a random way when we can never understand it? And that's probably happening anyway, I suppose. Or is it that some of the beings we're dealing with are actually know about that and are dealing with it, are using those factors to their advantage and you know that greater so that i think is the question that but we try and answer with the trickster if you want i can take it just to think about the crypto to, to, to go somewhere it might be quite interesting that just to give us a bit of a uh, thought on that because that this is an alternative explanation for maybe skinwalker ranch or something there's a great book by a guy called ryan musgrave evans i don't agree with him on everything but his great idea is about crypto terrestrial it's called children of orion and uh, he talks about a crypto profile, which is the, it's a bit like Jack Valet's profile, actually. And this is, the, I'll just give you the profile, basically. And bear with me, and I don't know if it's correct or not. One thing about the profile, it does fit a lot of sightings, though, once you start looking into it. Uh, so the others would have a, have a human appearance normally, the Nordic tall whites. 
uh, and they grow over time. And all these sounds daft, they start off at three foot and they end up at eight foot and go over. This is over a few hundred years of the lifespan. Crucially, they wear these black tech suits a lot, but they've got red eyes, helmets. These are like XO things. They've got greater strength. They've got a lot of side tech. Uh, they can manipulate portals, go through stuff. Tend to live in isolated places, like uh, in the middle of isolated forests, in mountains, undamaged areas. They've got a variety of craft, craft square, circular source of it to go around. But the key thing is they like they keep hidden, a bit like the old fairies are supposed to be a, a memory of them and all that, like Jack Valley said. They maybe infiltrate society, manipulators and misdirectors, a bit like the Wizard of Oz, because they're eight lot, they do abductions as well. They sort of manipulate us into so we don't know about their presence. Uh, are they old human? Are they something else? But in a way, what, why I quite liked it, even though I, I don't say I believe it, it's just why I liked it, because it explains a lot of things simultaneously, like Skinwalker Ranch, the portals, the weird paranormal activity, you know, the, the hidden bases on the ground, the weird energies, that sort of stuff. And the cryptid, the, see, the theory in the, in the CT theory, the cryptids, a lot of the cryptids that you see and all that are actually projections like screen memories that they're projecting using this sci-tech and all the rest of it. It's linked to a thing by, I think, called the Tall Whites and a guy that, uh, I forget the guy who wrote with that now, but he, anyway, I won't go into that, but he basically said that there was a colony of these things that the US government were working with in the 50s and 60s in Arizona. Uh, it comes to his name in a minute. And there's a few things linked around it, but the point is they've got this profile, and it, it is interesting. To, and if you go and look at a lot of the UFO the cases, not all of them, but a lot of them, they do tend to fit this thing. And so it, the point about this is it could be that we think that this whole weird ultra-dimensional thing that's going on, uh, but actually it's a much more focused phenomenon about a hidden. And Hal Puthoff wrote that thing about the ultra-terrestrials, and there's a much more hidden and focused thing, living under the seas, under the ground, you know, coming up, manipulating us, trying to convince us not to destroy the planet because they're living on it. And it's a much more focused thing. And indeed, Nick Redford in another book about NASA, which you'll know, Frank, as well, he mentioned that a couple of people from NASA or, or intelligence service had reported conversations with these people. So I wonder if the military know about these guys. And, uh, and if that's part of the threat, but, but we see, and it does explain the thing you always come to, Frank. You know, if we ever met these alien races or whatever races, uh, then, you know, there'd be thousands and thousands of million years ahead of us. But this lot don't seem to be. They seem to be just keeping ahead of it. And they've got great tech, but not tech we couldn't imagine, which would be more commensurate with something that's from this planet, if that makes sense. But I, I just throw it out or there. Or future a, humans. In, yeah, well, this guy, right, funnily enough, Ryan Musgrave Evans, he talks about the future human thing. He, he thinks that's what they are. That's why it's called Children of Orion. And it's very much like that Ray Birch thing about the uh, future human thing, or, which is similar to what you were talking about, Frank, uh, ages ago, that you'd heard from other intelligence sources about that whole thing. I won't go into it because, you know, but he, but he thinks that's what they are, actually. That's his take. I don't know whether that's true because you could argue a number of ways. I think they may be an old remnant that's persisted, but that might be even more unlikely than the future human thing. But the point is, is it a more focused thing? If you see what I mean? The, and, and the slide nine thing, I think, is crucial because I think slide nine could well describe that lot, if that makes sense. Well, I've just been talked about all those things are consistent with slide nine. So 
it may, as I say, it may be a bit much more focused phenomenon. There you go, Al. That's another one, maybe unanswerable. I don't know, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What do you reckon, Frank? Have you got anything to add on that? And I'd be, I'd be interested to hear as well if, obviously, you know, something you've spoke about in the past is this um, future human thing as well, and perhaps whether there's a, a, you know, something that links in with the the crypto thing there. And you, you've mentioned uh, about hearing about temporal agents and things like that. I don't know if there's been any updates yeah. uh, since since back then that, that you that you've heard. No, I, I just keep a very open mind, but I find it, yeah. I find it hard to to think that it's kind of like one entity or one kind of technology or one consciousness. Just because people have so many people have positive experiences, you know, thousands and thousands of people, you know, contactees or whatever, and you know, saying they get downloads. I, I'm not saying that they're, they're, that hundreds of thousands of people or millions of people are talking bullshit. Not at all. I, I think. You've got your fair share of charlatans, but then you've got, you know, people who are, you know, genuinely kind of switched on. Maybe people like, you know, Buddhists, people who engage in like, you know, deep, heavy meditation, certain occultists, for sure. Um, and certain members of the intelligence community and, and, you know, ordinary people as well who kind of got reached that level of attunement. Um, but I find it very difficult because to accept or, or to accept, to understand how it could be one phenomenon or one kind of entity or one consciousness because then again, you have the very negative side, like the the abductions, all the rest of it, um, and then you have you know uh, a sort of you know f- the, the phenomenon like uh, you know the men in black. And I'm not talking about like the government version. I'm talking about you know the kind of like the, the sort of weird a- yeah. otherworldly ones that, that people like Albert Bender have reported, um, and, and many other people have reported over the years that aren't kind of quite human. Um, and then you've got you know like you know the future humans. You add that into the mix. So I think it could be like a whole range of things. I, I just, I just find it very hard to to see how kind of like cryptids, UFOs, and everything, you know how it all comes from 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 kind of like one one starting point. I think there may be like a you know a number of different uh, you know phenomena. That that's just how it works in my head. Anyway, I'm not saying I'm right or. Yeah, absolutely, mate. And, and I think it's one of them, isn't it? When you when you actually look at all the data that's available on people's experiences, people's sightings, and and all the full range, like I touched on earlier about the extremes of some people see an angelic feminine entity and other people see some kind of horrible demonic thing. And again, people interpret those experiences in different ways and it affects their lives in different ways. I think some of the, the ideas that we've touched on, especially in the second half of this today, have been quite out there, but it's not necessarily that we actually fully buy into any of those things but it's just those are the kinds of things that are interesting to consider as possibilities and uh, you know it could be all of the above for all we know i mean again when you look at things like the you know the the james webb telescope and the unbelievable scale of the universe and you know how can any of that be possible and it sort of opens up the mind to thinking about you know other things that, that could be possibly visiting us here and there's so much that could be possible it's interesting to consider it all but that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to buy into it as you know something that's the, the core explanation of, of what's going on so really interesting to, to speculate you want to add something there dave no i was just saying frank's hit on the fundamental weakness of that crypto hypothesis i mean it may explain a bit more of what's going on as a coherent thing a bit more of it but it's certainly, it's unrealistic to think that it explains everything. And it's probably, it's about how all these different things interact and the per- percentage of the cake, as it were, of the whole phenomenon as you observe it, or it's observed, what different things are responsible for. Because I agree, because that is the, while I think it does explain a lot, and, it, and 
it does give him a seemingly disparate phenomenon happening at the same time. It certainly doesn't explain all the different experiences. And I think that's right. So that's the big weakness of it. So I agree. I think it's it's a mix of things, really. It's just it, and it's how much thing people are riding on the wave, as it were, or beans are, and they are. And of course, there is still quite a lot of. I mean, Mellon and Davis and a lot of people believe in the ET thing. There's a lot of evidence for that still. And we've got presidential briefings, allegedly. And there's a lot of data from satellites and all the rest of it. So, I, 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 you know, I, I, while we're going down this route, you have to, it does sound a bit weird because once you get into it, you have to discuss these very strange concepts. But you have to do it to try and evaluate them or at least analyse them. Uh, and uh, so I, I think, like you say, we have to keep that open mind. But uh, I, I think all bets, I think everything's still on the table, really. It probably is a mixture. So I'm not boring as that sounds, but uh, probably more realistic as that sounds, I think. I think that's the only sensible thing. Yeah, yeah I, fair play. I agree Sorry, 100%. No, I was going to say I agree 100% with what Dave's just said. And I think all we can do is, is not be dogmatic and keep an open mind. Um, and, you know, for example, you know, conflict between, you know, you've got contactees or experiences who say, oh, you know, ET is good. And then people, abductees say, you know, ET is bad because, you know, they've been doing nasty things to me. I think you've got to try and get beyond that and, and keep an open mind um, as to the various, you know, phenomena that, that exist, whether it's one phenomenon or, or, or multiple phenomena. I think, you know, a crazy thing, you know, when you see it, skinwalkers, you know, kind of like the UAP, the cryptids, the portals, um, the kind of the, the poltergeist activity, all those things happening in, in, in kind of like one area. Um, makes it even more confusing. So is it like one thing or is it a multitude of different phenomena that are kind of like attracted to each other and kind of come together yeah, in a package? Yeah. So all I can do is keep an open mind to it. And, you know, probably beyond my mind at this present moment in time. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Well, that's the thing sometimes that sort of freaks me out. Perhaps it's whatever we, we're dealing with here is, is, is so beyond any of our understanding that we'll may never actually get to figure it out you know one, one thing i i do sometimes think is that some of this absurdity the the trickster element could be a little bit similar to what we spoke about with yeah with you know in part one that rick doty said often happens with disinformation attempts you know the experience has certain aspects included which make it harder to make sense of and that might be deliberately so as to mislead the individual having the experience and make it impossible them to to understand what just happened to them or it could just be as i mentioned earlier side effects of technology or just the side effects of the experience affecting consciousness itself and maybe having the experience opens up other doors of perception that previously were closed and things like that, you know, possibly what is being seen through those doors of perception that aren't normally open is so impossible for a human brain to actually make sense of that. It's kind of, you know, interpreted as like this absurd nonsensical information. And obviously, you know, these kinds of topics we've touched on are some of the most difficult parts of the whole UFO mystery to get to the bottom of, really, is it potentially starts to get into, like, reality itself and our ability to interact with that reality. So, you know, do I have any answers to any of that? Absolutely not, but, you know, definitely fascinating to uh, to think about and, and to talk about. So uh, either of you guys have anything further to add before we wrap up for today? I have one thing, just one. I think the thing that people call, and uh, well, two things really. It's interesting to see. We talked, we started off last week talking about, or a few days ago, talking about disclosure. 
And I think this discussion we've just had, or both discussions actually, illustrate the difficulty of that disclosure, both in terms of what it means in tactical and strategic terms, and both what it means in terms of having a conversation about what this could mean. So, so I, I think, uh, I think, I, I think it, that 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 illustrates that. And the other thing is maybe an, the idea of defensive posture. I do you have an attacking or defensive, or what's your posture to an enemy or to a thing? I think it just shows we have to have this flexible, emergent posture. And these sort of discussions, while they seem you know a bit weird, help us to think about where we might jump when it when when things are, uh, come to light. So I think they're useful and they sort of never wasted, but. I think it's quite interesting how, again, the discussions, this discussion links into what we started talking about a few days ago. It's really, you know, it's quite fascinating, but I think you can't go too far with the public on a lot of these issues. People need a lot of education on it first, or, or education a bit patronising. They need to know a bit of the background uh, because it sounds really weird unless you, you know why people are getting to some of these places. Yeah, anything you want to add, Frank? No, I'll just add to what Dave said. I mean, yeah, that would really freak people out and, um, you know, could produce, um, you know, major kind of societal impacts and also as well, you know, economic impacts as well. And not just in terms of technology, but uh, you know, in, in terms of, um, you know, if you had like civil unrest. Um, I mean, it's very, it, the, 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 the weirder and freakier aspects of the phenomena are going to be very, very hard for people to get their heads around. I think if the government told them, um, you know, the American government, UK government, yes, you know, there are, you know, extraterrestrial beings and they are, you know, there is other life in the universe and they are capable of like interstellar travel, then I think, you know, people could kind of get their head around that if, if the government was announcing it to them. But all the kind of weird and wonderful stuff about like invisible entities and disembodied voices and, you know, abductions and all the rest of it, I think it can be very, very hard for people to get their heads around. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know if um, um, you've heard that new interview that's just come out with christopher mellon yeah, but he, seen, he, yeah. he he talks about um um he, he did say it was kind of like secondhand information that had come to him but he'd heard that there was actually a, a president who had considered disclosing everything that is known to the public and they had a really in-depth meeting with you know loads of different points pros and cons and in the end they kind of decided that actually it would be too disruptive to reveal that to the public and what you were saying just then would certainly explain as to why that that decision was was made you know if it's if it's nice and simple and easy easily packaged explanation that people can get their heads around that's one thing but if it starts to touch on all these really terrifying strange you know very difficult to explain aspects it's a bit of a different story isn't it well i think so there's a there's a reason that there's a there's a kind of like a real world um kind of parallel that you can add to that i mean in terms of like counter counter terrorism operations yeah i mean you've had some Everybody, I think, knows, uh, like in the UK, Europe, you know, other countries, that there have been, you know, successful terrorist kind of attacks carried out, you know, outrages where lots of people have been killed. But there's also, you know, many, many more that have been prevented by the by the by the intelligence and security services. Okay, but the government isn't going to announce those. One for operational reasons, and two, if they really said, you know, for every successful terrorist terrorist attack, there's like, you know, twenty or thirty that we foil. I mean, that could freak people out as well, right? Because terrorists only have to get lucky like once. So, are, are you really going to want to? Um, make people feel even more under threat than they already than they already feel. No, you want to make them feel kind of like fluffy and warm and, and protected. Yeah, absolutely, mate. So it's a very good point, and uh, I think on 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 that bombshell, I'd like to uh, thank you both for joining me. It's been a great conversation once again. Thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks guys, very much. much.
Yeah, fantastic. Cheers. Thanks, Frank. Thank both Franks, actually. Fantastic. <laughs> nice one. Let's see you. Yeah, cheers, guys. Guys, 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 guys. You are both in good podcasts.